Morning, everyone. Lovely to see you in virtual this morning. Um, I'm actually going to read uh, Romans 12 from verse 9 to 21, but the version I'm using is not uh, the regular NIV 11 uh, that we use. I'm, I'm reading this morning uh, from the, uh, the Holman, uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Um, but follow along with any translation, you'll sort of work out that it's uh, roughly all the same. Here we are, Romans chapter 9, uh, sorry, chapter 12, beginning verse 9. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honourable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Let me lead us all in prayer, and then we'll get stuck into this wonderful part of God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank and praise you that you speak to us by your word uh, and in the power of your Holy Spirit for our good. We thank you that uh, whilst we... Uh, are not really truly gathered uh, physically uh, as a church this morning, uh, that uh, there's no limitation on the power of your spirit and your word is unchained and will go forth and produce that which you intend for. And we thank you that we can rest assured that that's what you'll accomplish in us today. And we ask uh, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I just want to check, am I going to be changing my sermon slides Mick or is that so? oh it's again I just want to shout out to the 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 techo brains that are doing their thing here guys they really do a wonderful job um, so uh, yeah give thanks to God for them as well friends one of the things that both Christians and non-Christians alike can sometimes seem confused about is what the New Testament be, means by the word worship uh, buildings that Christians meet in sometimes get called worship centres. Notice boards and websites advertise times for worship and worship services can be things led by worship leaders, which include worship songs. State government restrictions during COVID lockdown, as we experience at the moment, affect what are called places of worship. And in various circles, the church leaders try to work out if we can have worship in an online setting or not. Yet, 
There is absolutely nowhere in the New Testament where worship or even the language commonly associated with worship is ever used to describe what Christians are to do when they gather. So what does the New Testament mean by the term worship and why on earth am I raising that question in expounding today's passage which doesn't use that word? Well, the great hinge point of Paul's letter to the Romans comes at the start of chapter 12. On account of God's great mercies in Christ, positively, we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, we are told, is true worship. To sharpen the definition, Paul also gives the negative. We are not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewal of the mind so as to know and do God's will. In many ways, what we're seeing here is two sides of the same coin. The what and the not of the all of life status for those who have been made worshippers in spirit and in truth. When it comes to offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice... One of the big ways we do that is by serving and serving one another wholeheartedly and in humility. The body of Christ has many parts and as we all do what we can to build his church, we're being living sacrifices to God. And uh, tip of the hat to Gav, I thought that was a brilliant uh, expounding of the word of God on this uh, part of Romans last week. But as Paul continues teaching us on how to live as worshippers, he now refers to a bunch of negative things that pertain to our fallen world. Five times in this short section for today, he uses the word evil. And he also mentions affliction, persecution, needs, weeping, revenge, cursing and enemies. So Paul is now teaching us what it is to be a living sacrifice, not only amidst the people of God but now also in a way that ensures we're not conforming to the pattern of this fallen world. And as he does that, our picture of true worship will be put into sharper focus. Firstly, we learn what love will look like for worshippers, not only within the church, but also amidst the evil of our fallen world. Look at me again at verse 9. Paul teaches love must be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good. God has demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. We saw that in Romans chapter 5. It's only right, it's only logical that we should therefore be people who in turn exercise sacrificial love to benefit others. But as God is also the God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil, it would be hypocritical of us to take after God when it comes to love and yet not take after him when it comes to detesting evil as well, obviously, as clinging to good. You see, it's so easy for us to think that being loving somehow means not being condemning of anything. Yet God's word, he commands us both to cling to what is good and to detest that which is evil. And to fail at either of these 
is to be hypocritical, is to be unlike God in the way we love. Uh, To give a made-up example, for Mr John Doe to be more loving to his wife, who I'm going to call Mrs Jane Doe, it could be right in his situation to pray that he become more diligent, say, in organising babysitters and initiating a, a regular date night. That might be something he's not enthused about, but he knows it would be good for him to do. That could be a good that he might do well to cling to. Yet he might also pray that God would make him disgusted with pornography. For cultivating a healthy hatred of sexual immorality will make his loving action toward her less hypocritical than it otherwise might be. To let love be without hypocrisy We must both cling to the good and detest or abhor the evil. Now, if Paul first applies this principle to the household of God, as the church, it's possible for us to love one another, sure. But also, let's be honest, in some areas, perhaps, to be a little bit competitive with one another, which makes our love a tad hypocritical. And so Paul says, verse 10, show family affection to one another with brotherly love and the only thing you should outdo one another is in showing honour. And also remembering that God's love is not so much about feeling but about a resolve to seek the good of the other, even at great cost to yourself, it's going to take energy and effort. And so verse 11, do not lack diligence, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And if you remember from last week, to serve the Lord really is to serve one another. It's easy to be wearied by the things of this world, such that showing unhypocritical love and therefore serving one another sacrificially is something for which we can lose diligence and fervour. And I know this too well myself. I'll admit, I've been pretty down. Early this week, I think, on account of lockdown, a bit of deja vu to 2020, I found it hard to have diligence and fervour in serving uh, my night church congregation by contacting them and praying for people, Uh, though thank God by Friday I kind of started to come good. But as we put effort into loving and serving one another as family, as we strive to make our only kind of competitiveness the one where we outdo one another in showing honour, we're actually serving the Lord. That time where you helped out a struggling brother or sister, even though it took emotional energy and you could have been doing something more fun, that was serving the Lord. It's the kind of thing for which he'll one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul knows it can be hard, which is probably why he reminds us to do some of the strengthening things that we're only able to do because of the great mercies of Christ. So verse 12, rejoice in hope be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. But then Paul widens the circle in which we're to love unhypocritically and serve sacrificially. From verse 13, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, in case you don't know this, uh, All Christians are called saints in the Bible. All saints are Christians. That's just what it is. 
And so as we share with the saints in need, we're serving the church, which is family. But we're also to pursue hospitality. And uh, you might not know this, but hospitality literally means love of stranger. And going further still, even the outsiders who persecute us are to receive our blessing rather than our cursing. For our God is the loving God who gives his blessing to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. At all levels, this will mean being involved empathetically in people's lives. Hence, in verse 15, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Similar to reflecting God's love in this fallen world, our worship will also involve striving for peace. Again, both in the church and in the world. So from verse 16 now, be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honourable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Notice again, Paul moves from the people of God to the world in general as he applies the principle, this time the principle of peace. Uh, What do I mean by peace or what does the Bible mean by peace? Well, the mercies of God in Christ result in peace for his worshippers. That is a contentment in that we're living under God as we were intended to and therefore at a fundamental level we're no longer striving against one another. But the fallenness of this world can still get the better of us, hence we need to cultivate humble thinking and a modest appraisal of ourselves so as to promote agreement with one another. Now, when Paul commands us to agree with one another, we know that he doesn't expect us all to be of the exact same mind on every issue. We know this because when we get to chapter 14... He expects there'll be things that Christians disagree on. But the idea is to be, I think, harmonious with one another, which is more likely to happen as we put off pride and stop being wise in our own estimation. And as I'm sure you know, and I know from experience, when we disagree with someone, it can be very easy to forget to treat them with honour. As he moves beyond the church and into the world, Paul teaches that we're also to do as much as there is in our power to live at peace with everyone. Now, given that he expects persecution and affliction, Paul doesn't assume peace will always be possible this side of heaven, which is why he says, if it's possible and on your part. To use the language of the New Testament... There are times when we'll need to shake the dust off our feet, Luke 9.51. There are times when we'll need to hate even the garments stained by the flesh, Jude 23. There are times when we're to stop giving to dogs what is holy, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Yet, as far as it depends on us, we're to strive for harmony both within the church and within the world. Now, brothers and sisters, by this point, you could certainly be forgiven for 
tuning out or getting a little glazy-eyed because it can kind of feel, and I felt like this, that Paul's just giving a bit of a shotgun approach to morality. Don't let love be hypocritical. Do detest evil and cling to good. Don't be proud. Do associate with the, la- uh, the, the, the lowly. Don't lack diligence. Do bless those who curse you. Right? Topic, topic, topic. Do, don't, do, don't. But when we take a step back and look at the big picture, we're seeing that from every conceivable angle, Paul is teaching us that in view of God's great mercies in Christ, we're to live as kingdom members even though God's kingdom is not yet fully manifested on earth as it is in heaven. You see, as Christians, we're in the somewhat unenviable position of living in the overlap of two ages. In this present age, our world in its fallenness is destined for destruction. On account of humanity's rebellion against God, it has an end and it won't be pretty. Yet it's also the world in which something so earth-shatteringly huge and significant has happened. After Jesus died, bearing the righteous anger of God for our sins, he rose again and ascended to God's right hand. All of this signals that there is a new age, the resurrection age, has begun. And this is an age that continues on into eternity and in which God's life-giving presence is constant. Spiritually, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, we're united with him and raised up with him. Yet bodily, we still inhabit this fallen, finite world. And so I hope you can see with the diagram there, an obvious question to ask is, are we to live according to the rules and customs of this age or the rules and customs of the resurrection age? Or are we to try and do both? Well, to that, the answer is that a sacrifice is something that is given over completely to God. Figuratively, The sacrificed animal was burned up and went up in smoke and ascended to be with God. And we've already been told that true worship is to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And that indicates that we're to live both bodily and spiritually only under the rules and customs of the resurrection age. There will be all sorts of ways in which those rules and customs, God's heavenly rule, gets worked out in a fallen world, which is why Paul has a lot of stuff, bang, 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 to say in Romans 12. But working them out and applying them, that is the activity of worship. And there's no better way to spend your life and your time and your effort because anything else is in the end utterly meaningless. One of the areas where it can be especially hard to apply kingdom values to a fallen world is in the area of revenge. Verse 19, Paul continues, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his, or literally leave room for the, wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord, but... 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. And then the third resurrection age principle that's to be applied to life in this age, verse 21, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. The teaching itself here is easy to understand. God is the righteous judge and he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Even more than that, he will take vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. For that reason, we are not to seek revenge for wrongdoing against us. But even more than that, we are in fact to seek the good of those who do us harm. Now, I want to be very careful to point out that this is not about justice, but about a subcategory of justice, namely vengeance. Justice is a very right and good thing. It's one of the good things that as Christians we're to cling to. And injustice is an evil that we are right to detest. Wanting the perpetrator to be fairly punished and wanting the victim to be vindicated is absolutely biblically right. Hoping for repentance and forgiveness is even more biblically right. But vengeance, the idea that I need to inflict the punishment upon the wrongdoer, so as to satisfy what could well be my right sense of justice, that's not mine for the taking. My longing to do that betrays my lack of faith that God's final justice will be adequate, will be sufficient, will be perfect. More than that, it makes me a hypocrite because I deserve that wrath of God on the last day. Yet in his amazing kindness, Jesus has taken that wrath in my place. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ gives the logical and the moral ground upon which we can bless rather than curse those who would do us harm. My firm trust, both in the forgiveness God offers in Jesus and in the sufficiency of his final judgment, means that I'm not only to, to, to forgo revenge, but actually to seek the benefit of those who would harm me. So it is for all Christians. Apart from uh, the Bible, the thing that I enjoyed reading the most this week uh, was the words of the great reformer John Calvin regarding this uh, very part of Romans 12. Uh, he writes in a complicated way, so I'm going to give you my paraphrase of John Calvin uh, on this uh, teaching of Paul about taking vengeance. Here's what he says. He says, The harder we find it to seek the good of our enemies, the more intensely we ought to strive to do it. If God has commanded it, then obviously we are to obey. To disobey would make us no different from the ungodly, the children of the world, rather than the children of God. I know that it's contrary to human nature to bless those who persecute us, but there is nothing so difficult that it cannot be overcome by the power of God, and such power is ours if we pray for it. 
Though there is no one so godly that they perfectly obey God in this area, no one can say they're truly Christian if they've not at least partially sought to obey the command and seek the good of their enemy or struggle to do so. God's command here is far more difficult than simply foregoing revenge where one has been injured. Sure, there might be people who don't retaliate, but they would still dearly love for destruction or loss to befall their enemies from some other source. Even if they're so much at peace as to wish their enemies no evil, there's hardly one person in a hundred who actually desires to do good to the one who has injured him or her. In fact, most people start cursing without any sense of shame. God, however, not only restrains our hands from doing wrong by his word, but also subdues the bitter feelings in our minds. Not only so, he would also have us be concerned for the well-being of those who bring destruction on themselves by wrongfully injuring us. John Calvin's always worth a read. And when you think about it, this is exactly the way that God has treated you and me. For while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And if whilst his enemies we were reconciled to himself, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath that will come on the last day? Friends, God's mercy gives us every reason to live as kingdom members, both within the church and within the fallen world. We serve one another in love and we even seek the good of those who persecute us. And because this is the key point, I'm going to say it again, God's mercy gives us every reason to live as kingdom members, both within the church and within the fallen world. And that is truly what it is to worship. So very simply, by way of implication... How are you going in your worship? Which of the things here do you need God's help in the most? Which of the things here do I need God's help in the most? Cultivating a more healthy hatred of evil, perhaps, including your own sin? Seeking to do good to that person who has wronged you badly? Getting rid of pride so as to become more harmonious in your relationships with your church family? Whatever it is, commit it to God in prayer this week. As a matter of fact, in just a minute, I'll conclude in prayer and I'll start us all off. Just one final thing before I do that, though. Given that we're to live under God's kingdom rule, even in this fallen world, it could be very tempting for us to think, therefore, that any of the powers or the authorities in this world, including government authority, is therefore no longer legitimate it need not be recognised by us. Well, that's the issue that Paul's going to turn to next. But I just throw that up as a little teaser for next week's sermon. Right now, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that though we deserve your just wrath and condemnation on the last day, that in your incredible love, you did good to your enemies, that Christ Jesus came into the world, lived, suffered 
and died in order to take away our sin. We thank you that on account of his resurrection, we've been raised up with him and that therefore we are able to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. And in all areas of life, not only in the church, but also in the world, we can live under your kingdom rule. And we pray for all the areas, Father, where we come up short against your word uh, in, in Romans 12, that you'd work mightily in us by your spirit uh, to change us more into the likeness of Jesus. Father, where we need to detest evil more, may we do so. Where we need to cling to good more, may we do so. Where we need to be more agreeable by getting rid of pride, may we do so. Where we need to not only forgive and forget, but even do good to our enemies, may we do so. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.